Well, we've been working our way through a kind of a relationship recovery series uh, for the past few weeks, and uh, we'll continue this when I get back. I think we're mining, mining something out that's going to be worthwhile in the days ahead. Uh, I'm not aware of any big relationship crisis or anything that's going on that warrants these messages, but I just feel like it's a vein that that we're in, and, and uh, we're going to need it in the days ahead, I expect. And um, today I'd like to teach about whether or not to, to fight or forbear. And uh, it came, that line comes out of a, a story found in the kings. When the kings of Israel were, uh, two of them were meeting together to decide whether to go after the Syrians or not, and they called for a prophet. And the big question that they asked the prophet is, do we fight or do we forbear? And that's stuck in my brain as, as, as the issue. That in so many times in my life, and I'm a redhead, so I'd fight first, I guess. I grew up in a, all these brothers. We all had to learn how to stand our ground and fight for everything we had. And, and, um, uh, but to learn to forbear and, and to decide which way to go in any situation, whether it's at work, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in the church or a friendship, um, that is the issue. And um, it takes maturity to be able to know how to navigate these things. Um, forbearance, actually, it's not a word we use very often. It's related to a, another word we don't use. In the Bible, it's called long-suffering. And um, long-suffering includes forbearance. It's, it's uh, knowing when to be tolerant, knowing when to have self-restraint, knowing when to endure offenses. And Jesus said, offenses will come. There's no way that you can go very far in life without having offenses happen to you. And to learn how to navigate that, that's the big issue. There will be offenses. People do have shortcomings. There are weaknesses. People, people are not whole. And, and you're having to relate, navigate through that. It's going to require, in fact, it's going to require three things. And I can't think of a fourth. So in my mind, in my heart, these are, these are three pretty, uh, pretty common responses. These are basic responses. One is to forbear, where you choose just to let it go. The other is to forgive, and you have to find out when the time is to forgive. And the other is uh, where you fight, and you fight with frankness, where you speak up. You have to say, this, this isn't going to continue. This, is, this has got to come to an end. And learning how to do those three things in the right measure, to the right degree, at the right time, well, that, takes, that takes maturity. And you're going to have to do it in your marriages. You're going to have to do it in your church. You're going to have to do it with your friendships. And sometimes you get it all mixed up. Uh, uh, there are people who, um, uh, whose faults and, and failures we... We think we need to confront, we need to speak to them about it, but we actually we need to forbear. And uh, then there's other times we think we, sh we should just forgive everything, but that's the time you should speak up. That's the time you should be frank. And uh, sorting these things out, learning how to do it. I hear people in the church sometimes, they, they just say, let's just forgive everything. Let's forgive what they've done when, when actually they need to be spoken to. Someone needs to speak to them. And that's a sign of immaturity that just says, let's just forgive everybody everything. Uh, no, there's a time when you have to take measures 
more than just forgiving. Here's what you shouldn't do when it comes to these issues. You shouldn't smolder. You shouldn't just let it, stuff it down and just let it smolder. After a while, if that happens, you'll quit church, you'll quit that marriage, you'll quit that relationship. If you let it smolder, suffering in silence, saying, well, I'll just stuff it down. Well, if it leaks out, if it leaks out through your mouth and you're telling other people what you should be confronting in that situation, that's a sign of immaturity. You're not doing it right. Some people, when they stuff it down or they, they smolder, it's funny, I, I've worked among Mennonites for many, many years, and they, they often hold up Matthew 18 as like their section of the Bible. But I see so often where they're not learning, they don't know how to confront all the time, and nobody's really good at this stuff. But I see too much bitterness. I see too much resentment that builds up, and it leaks out, comes out of their mouth, makes them change churches, makes them uh, um, have a, uh, if not a divorce, a silent divorce where you just suffer in silence. And um, the worst thing I see, I, I give a whole sermon to this a couple weeks ago, is, is bitterness, resent, resentment. And it happens. And I, I just thought I would say this today, just as frankly as I can, just as openly, honestly as I can. If you're bitter... No one's responsible for that but you. That's your choice. You can't blame someone for your bitterness. No matter what they did, your bitterness is your choice. That's, your, that's how you've chose to respond. You don't have to go to bitterness. But it so often happens and people feel justified. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Well, I don't know what they did to you. And, and stuff has happened to all of us. But your resentment, your Cutting that person off, that's on you. That's, no one's responsible for that response but you. So there's forbearance, there's forgiveness, then there's fighting. As Christians, we fight. We have to, uh, in fact, when I sit down and work with people who are getting married, I teach them how to fight. It's not a case whether you'll fight or not. You have to learn how. There's things you can do, there's things you need to know. You have to be taught how to fight. You will fight. It will happen. But uh, not, all the, not all fighting is even. How did Jesus fight? I think that's, he's the model for how we navigate all this stuff. Jesus lived a life of confronting. He always told people uh, what they needed to hear. And um, we see in the Bible where he, he fought, he come back with this major army and, he, and a sword was coming out of his mouth. There's a picture of him in First Revelation of him having a sword in his mouth. Well, that's how he fights. He fights with truth. He fights by saying the truth. Truth will set you free. It might make you mad first, but it will set you free. It will change things. There's freedom in truth. And Jesus used truth to confront people and, and, and laid it out there. That's why you see him, the way he dealt with the Pharisees, when, when they were living in hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another, Jesus called them on that and said, look at this is hypocrisy. You're a hypocrite. Other times he'd say, you're, you're a, a brood of vipers. That's like saying you're a nest of baby snakes. 
What an amazing thing to say. Now, we know Jesus walked in love. So when he said that, he was doing that out of love. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't being sarcastic. He's not belittling them. What he's doing that's so powerful is he's speaking a truth in such a way, and their, their shell is so hard, so incarcerated by legalism and blindness and living a lie that something had to penetrate that. And the sword of his mouth was he said something that stuck like a burr in their brain. You can believe that those Pharisees, they went back and all they could think about, he called me as a brood of vipers. He called me a, a hypocrite in front of everybody. <clears throat> Jesus didn't treat ordinary, stumbling, fumbling people that way. He, there's no record where he spoke to innocent, struggling people that way. But he would always speak against corrupt authority. He'd always speak about people who knew the truth but weren't living the truth. He'd, speak, he'd deal with them one way and deal with sinners and struggling people. He'd deal with them completely different. He knew how to navigate that. And we have to learn how to do that. There's some people say, well, I always give everybody a piece of my mind. Well, that's not, that's not the best thing to do. It, doesn't it takes more maturity to know when to do it and how to do it. Jesus used the sword of his mouth. Then when we fight, part of what he was going after is he was, he was dealing with demons that was holding these people in hostage. That's why he would say it looked like such a hard thing, but he was doing it in love. We have a sword of the Spirit, and uh, he, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 6 how to wear the armor of God. And one part of our armor is the sword of the Spirit uh, where, you, where you, you say things that make a difference. You say things that change the war for other people. There's a place for that. You have to see the war as it really is, and it's not easy to do. But Paul said, for example, in the Ephesians 6, he said, we fight, we wrestle. We wrestle not against people. People aren't the issue, but there's demons, there's spirits that use people's mouths. There's, there's spirits that control people. There's spirits that they yield to that that rage or that, that addiction, there might, be, there might be a demon that needs to be dealt with that only the sword of the spirit will work and change and deal with. And um, uh, we, do, we do wrestle against the powers of darkness, against evil spirits. It's, it's part of our fight. We do fight, but our fight is different. It's like Jesus when he's standing before Pilate and he was asking him about his kingdom. He said, he said if, if my kingdom was of this world, my, my servants, they would fight. But we have a different kingdom. We're doing something different. We navigate this in a different way. Truth sets people free. I think probably the best picture of Jesus using the sword of the Spirit actually was in church. He wrote seven letters through John. He wrote seven letters to seven churches. And he revealed and cut away what was happening so that everyone could see it. And it's a powerful tool to set people free. We need preaching that sets, we need preaching that cuts. We need preaching that deals with people. It has to happen. I mean, it can't be every sermon, but 
can you, can you, will you tolerate the honest truth about your true condition? That's part of, that's part of walking this thing out. We need preaching that sets people free. Jesus saw the war differently. He saw the war differently than anyone else. Probably uh, the best example of this is when they came to arrest him. And they came to the garden to arrest him, and it was the high priest's personal bodyguard. It was the temple police coming to arrest Jesus. And he had been telling the, the disciples, this is going to happen. They're going to arrest me. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. They're going to kill me. And so he was explaining how this was going to happen. And uh, so the night that it happens, they come with their torches, the, their spears, and Judas, you know, he comes in, he kisses Jesus to indicate which one they should arrest. The whole thing was, was an amazing circumstance. And Jesus speaks to them, and you can find this in Luke chapter uh, 22, verse 53. And this is what he says that really gives us an insight into how Jesus saw the battle. He said, this is your hour, and... The power of darkness. Well, that's the same phrase. When, when Paul wrote about the armor of God, he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual uh, beings in heavenly places. But he's, he talks about the powers of darkness. Demons. Demons that use people like pawns. Jesus saw these men as being used by the enemy. He said, this is your hour. They're responsible for what they do. But... Also, it's the power of darkness. He saw the battle. Everything that happens to you, you have to step back and say, what's, what's happening here? How's, how's the enemy using my friend who normally, or my spouse, someone, a brother in church, sister in church? How, how's the enemy using them? And, and Jesus saw the war really as it, as it was. Peter didn't. Peter saw it as a people problem. So he pulls out the sword, and, and he, goes, he goes after them. And he goes after, and he hits this guy named Malachus. And Malachus is the, the servant, personal servant of the high priest. And he's there in the crowd. And Peter takes that sword and whacks him, and, and his ear comes off. <clears throat> Cuts him alongside that, this alongside that. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. I, th I think he was aiming more center, and uh, he missed. That's how Jesus saw the, or that's how Peter saw the battle. He's, he saw, get rid of the people, get rid of that person, change churches, divorce that person, may change that relationship. That's, that's not going to solve your problem every time. Those spirits will still be working. You can kill the person. Peter, Peter saw it as a people problem. Get rid of this person. He wanted to split his head wide open, I believe. Jesus saw the war differently. He, he saw the problem was not Malachus. Malachus is being used by the enemy, by the powers of darkness. So Jesus walks over, bends down, picks up the guy's ear, and puts it back on his head. And it's one of the greatest healings in the Bible. It's, this is an enemy, and he's the, but he's a beloved enemy, and he's just being used by the enemy. So he ends up, he ends up healing Malachus in a way that is just, it's one of the greatest healings I, I, I've ever read. 
Can you imagine Malachus going home and he goes home that night and his wife knew that he was on duty and knew that <clears throat> there's a big confrontation out in the woods and she wants to know how it goes and, and how it went. And he's, he's just lost. He's been touched by Jesus. He's been touched by the guy who he went to arrest. And, he's, and the, all he's thinking is, he loves me. He loves me. And he could just, he'd go to the shaving mirror and just, and just look. I mean, he'd been so wrecked. But now, I think for years to come after that, he was useless in the hands of the devil anymore because he'd been touched by love. He'd experienced mercy. I think it neutralized them. I think that's a powerful thing to, to see happen. I, I've seen that kind of healing where it neutralizes people. Peter's, Peter didn't get, he didn't get it. He didn't understand it. He saw it as a people problem. <clears throat> Peter missed it a, another time as well. Uh, there's this time when they're on the mountain, they're getting ready, and, and Jesus had been uh, telling them, preparing them for what was coming, but he says, he says, who do the people say I am? And they talked about, well, they say you're some resurrected prophet, uh, you're John who's resurrected. See, they believed in the resurrection, but just at the wrong time for the wrong people. They believed in resurrection. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps up. He says, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, you, you couldn't have known that except that's a revelation from my father. You couldn't have known that except God showed you. God's speaking through Peter. I kind of picture Peter putting his finger in his suspenders and kind of walking off like God speaks through me. Wow. Jesus said it. Jesus said that was a revelation. And it's just a few minutes later, it's the same meeting, the same context, where Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Jerusalem. The leadership, our denomination, they're going to they're gonna capture me they're going to kill me. They're going to torture me. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. They're going to kill me. Peter steps up and says, not so, Lord. No way. No, 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 no. This is not, this is not God. This is not going to happen. Jesus looks at Peter. And he, what he does is profound. He looks at Peter, but he speaks to the devil. Now, don't try this at home when you're fighting with your wife. This will not work. I've tested this out. This doesn't work. But he said it. I mean, you better be spirit-filled if you're, if you're going to do this. He said, he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, how Satan had got into Peter in that moment to speak through him, he said it in the next line. He said to Peter, he said, for you care about the things that you care about more than the things that God cares about. You savor the things of men more than the things of God. You want what you want more than you want what God wants. That's the issue. That gets us in trouble all the time. Anytime we want more, we want what we want more than we want what God wants, the devil, he'll skate all over that. He'll come through that. That's what happened. Here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't fire Peter. He didn't say, that's it, you're off the team. He didn't he didn't say, okay, but I'm going to demote you. He didn't say, no, no, we're going to build some things in your life from now on because some accountability, some things. That... 
because you're, you're not a whole person. You're not a very good person, Peter. The devil used you. Well, the fact is, it happens to all of us. He's used my mouth by the Spirit, and then my flesh will say something shortly after, gets me in trouble. I mean, we're all Peters. What he didn't do to Peter is to say, I'm going to hold you at that place of failure. I'm going to, every time I see, I'm going to remind you of what you did. The devil used you, Peter. He didn't do that. There's a time you just, you've confronted. He confronted it. And there's a time you just let it go. We have to learn. We have to learn how to confront or how to cover and the word cover, this whole thing of covering or confronting, it's a powerful thing. There's a place for both of them. Listen to this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8, so it's Peter writing this. He knows of my experience. He's above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. That's Peter. He's quoting, I think, something... I think he's quoting something from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 12 says something similar. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs, here's a couple other Proverbs. He who covers a transgression seeks love. There's a time to cover. There's a time to say, I don't want other people to know that this happened. But he who repeats the matter, tells other people, separates chief friends. Here's another one, Proverbs 19, 11. The discretion of a man, we've been teaching about discretion. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. There's something of maturity, there's something of character, it's to your glory that says, okay, that happened, that was a, a slight. I, I, I read history books, I see different times in, in history where this kind of stuff happened. Lincoln was amazing, levels of forbearance and forgiveness, amazing. But there's times where it just shows you're the great person, that you can just overlook that, you can just let that go. Someone else would have been all over that, cutting the guy's head off, but it's to your, it's to your glory that you just overlook a transgression. There's a place of maturity where that works. I think this whole idea of where long-suffering or forbearance, where it comes from, I don't think we can generate any of it in ourselves. In fact, if you want to tweet something, we're short on long-suffering. There's a tweet. You can, you can put that in your phone. We're short on long-suffering. All of us, all of us fumble with this. Uh, very few people are good at it. But here's where, here's where we get it. If you go with me to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. There's this exchange with Moses and God. And Moses having a hard time with the people. A hard time, he's a pastor. He's got a church of two million. He's struggling. And, um, and the Lord tries to encourage Moses. And he speaks to him. And he says, he says, Moses, I know you. In other words, I know your heart. I know you. And Moses says, but I don't, I don't know you. Show me your heart. The language he used, the King James says, show me your glory. 
but your glory is, is your spirit. He says, uh, show me your name. Show me who you are. And God said, I will. I think that's one prayer. Listen now. I think that's one prayer he'll always answer. Especially when you're in conflict. Especially when you're, in, when you're struggling some kind of relationship. So he takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock. In the cleft of the rock, he can't go anywhere. He can't go forward. He can't, he can't leave. I think there's places that God's got you where you can't leave that job. You, you can't, I mean, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. I mean, there, you can't get out. You can't get out of that marriage. You can't get out of that church. I mean, God called you to that church. You can't just walk away. And so he, I think that's the cleft of the rock. I think when he's got you in a place where you can't get away, but you don't want to be there, he's got you. He set you up. He, here's what's going to happen. He's about to show Moses his name. I think when you're so mad and you're so frustrated, you can't seem to get out of that circumstance, you're set up. That's the perfect time for you to get a revelation of the heart of God. That's, that's when you say, okay, Lord, I can't get out of this thing. Show me your glory. Show me your name. Show me who you are. And God does. And what he does is so interesting. When he passes by and he declares his name, he doesn't say, I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm, I'm Jehovah Nisi. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm I am. He doesn't say those kinds of names. He, here's what he says about himself. He says, I am merciful. I am gracious. We sang about that today. I am long-suffering. He doesn't have long-suffering. He is long-suffering. I am abounding in goodness and truth. So that truth, you can't separate those, those two things what God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. You can't separate goodness and truth. Mercy and truth, are, they've kissed, they've married. You can't separate them. And it takes maturity to be able to speak the truth in love. But he says, I am truth. I, I'm all mercy, but I'm no pushover. I'm truth. And he goes on to describe, he says, I am forgiveness. Yet, at the same time, not clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity. So all three, the forbearance, the forgiveness, and the fighting, are all in this, this, this one description of God's heart. He's all three of those things operating at all at the same time. They're not in conflict with each other. But it takes something of the heart of God to know which one do you employ, and which one do you, which one do you play in spades, and which one do you hold back. We're not good at this. We, we've got to get better at it. I think the way to do it is when you're stuck, when you're stuck and you can't seem to get out of that relationship, look up. Say, Lord, show me your name. The only thing that's going to change this thing is you changing me, changing my name, changing my heart. Show me who you are. Show me what you're like. Show me what you would do. He's far more merciful than you could ever possibly imagine. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is long-suffering and kind. 
Love is long-suffering and kind. As you could say God is long-suffering and kind because God is love. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 13 about how love works, what it looks like, how it acts. Here's what's interesting. He says love is long-suffering. That's, that's more than just gritting your teeth and bearing it. That's not stuffing it down. But while you're waiting, it says love is long-suffering and kind. Kindness is the action. Kindness is, is making the person a cup of tea, bringing them a cup of tea while you're, while you're enduring something that they've done to you. Ah, oh, now you're cooking with, now you're getting somewhere. See, just to endure it, just to stuff it down, that's not it. Love says, okay, I'm a wait. I'm a, I know they're going to change. I know they're going to grow. But in the meantime, what good can I do? What can I do? How can I do something for them? Love is kind, long-suffering and kind. It's an amazing thing. This is not for wimps. This is, this is hard to do. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to this. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance, leads you to repentance? You can put that up on the screen if you can, Jen. Romans 2, 4. He's talking about Christians. He says, Now, do you despise... The riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. we got both those words in the same verse. Not knowing that the goodness of God is really what changes people. That's what brought you to repentance. That's what's going to win you over in your marriage or your conflict or that, that person that you're, uh, who works on your team and you're struggling with that. Well, the thing, that, the thing that's going to work is somehow it's the goodness of God that, that made you change, made you repent. We with, when we're, when we're uh, enduring someone, so often we withhold goodness from them. We don't make love to them. We don't eat with them. We don't have a cup of tea with them. We don't do things that we should. But who knows? Maybe it's an act of goodness that will change their heart, change what they do. <coughs> I had an experience one time. I was a new Christian, young disciple, and I went over to my sister's house just to visit with her one day, and I had an old Pinto station wagon. That was my car, and uh, it, it was a rust bucket. They said you could hear Ford sitting in the field rusting. You could hear them rusting at night. Well, this car was very rusty. You'd slam the door when the doors worked. You'd slam the door, and it would shake all around the car. It was like someone took one of those shakers of cinnamon all the way around the car. And you could see where you parked. And um, so I parked at my sister's house, and this kid across the street backs out of his driveway, crosses the road, and backs right into my car, dents it up, big dent in the back. And I heard it, and so I went out, and he was, he was so upset with himself. He was falling all over himself, apologizing. 
I could smell a little booze on his breath. And he was all apologetic. I looked at the car. It really didn't make much difference. And he says, oh, I'll, I'll pay for this. I'll pay for this. I said, how are you going to pay for it? He said, I've got money. I've got money. He said, I'll give you $300 for this. Why? I only made about $150 a week. 300 bucks out of the blue? I mean, I'm thinking, hallelujah. This is God. Hit it again. You know, like, it, it just didn't, af didn't affect me at all as far as the car. But the kid was so apologetic and and, and he said, oh, I'll pay you for this. I said, where are you, you going to get 300 bucks? He said, I've got it. I've, I, I've got it in the bank. I'll run down. I'll get it. Stay right here. I'll bring it back. And I said, go get it. So off he went. And while he was gone, God began to work on me. And I paced the floor of this. I did not want to yield. My flesh was struggling with this. But the idea of, of just forgiving the kid came to me, and I thought, boy, I want that $300, and it, it was, I had to work, work around that, but finally, I got to a place where I said, okay, Lord, I, I want to see what you're going to do with this, I, I, I believe this is something that you're showing me to, to, to do, and so the kid came back, sat at my uh, sister's kitchen table, and he pushed three brand new $100 bill, dollar bills across the table in front of me. And I pushed him back. And I said, I'm a Christian. I've made mistakes and done things I shouldn't have done. God has forgiven me. I want to forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. And he completely fell apart. He sobbed and took, for, took a while for him to be able to speak. He said, but you don't understand uh, how I got the money. He said, an old guy backed into my car and I sued him for everything I could. And I got the check today and I was celebrating and he had a few too many beers. And I thought, whoa, this is a total setup. I mean, the Lord wanted to speak to him. What, what he should have done was forgive that old man. He shouldn't have taken advantage of him. And then the Lord sets it up the day that he gets the check, the same thing happens to him. Who knows? Who knows? When you go through stuff, oh, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want to do? What are you after in me? What are you after in them, the person who's offended you? What are you trying to do to them? And your response, your response, especially in the re if it's in mercy, oh, who knows where God will take that? Who knows what he'll what he'll do. He could change hearts. He could break a pattern in someone's life. And he just needed, he just needed you. You're your upon in the hands of the Lord to do a deep, lasting work in someone's life. Who knows? Who knows? Well, what if someone, what if I forgive and what if I forbear and they just keep doing it? Well, Jesus talked about that. You can read it. Luke chapter 7 I'm sorry, Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, take heed to yourselves. If a brother sins against you, rebuke him. That's, conf that's confronting. 
You have to learn how to confront. And if he repents, forgive him. Once, he's, once you've confronted him, there's nothing else you can do but forgive him. He says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, can you imagine the same thing happening over and over and over again? He said, and seven times in a day, he returns to you and says, okay, I, I repent. You should forgive him. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's probably the easiest time to forgive someone is when they've admitted it. But sometimes they don't admit it. Sometimes they think that you're the one that's wrong. You know how you can tell who should take the first step in this area of forgiveness? The most mature should take the first step. Who's the most mature person at the table? Who's the most mature person in the house? Most spiritually mature. I think there's a time when we have to confront, especially if we can't forgive it, especially if we can't forget it, especially if it interferes with our worship, it's hurting our health. You go to church and the only thing that comes to your mind is what that person did to you. You have to confront. You're going to have to sit down. The word confront means forehead to forehead. It's two Latin words, confront, and it means sitting down face to face. It means forehead to forehead. And sometimes it's the only thing that will change the circumstance. You have to learn how to do it. I think, I think if it's interfering with you going to church, you need to confront. If it's an interference in you worshiping the Lord, you can't worship because it's on your mind, you need to confront. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if you go to the altar and you're about to leave your gift, we say that's worship or maybe it's an offering. And there you remember that someone else has got a problem with you. It's not even that you have a problem with them. You know they've got a problem with you. He said, here's what you do. You leave your gift on the altar and you go and be reconciled. Now, the most mature person is the one who takes that step. You have to decide, are you more mature than the person you're at odds with? But Jesus is saying, here's what I want. I want reconciliation more than I want your worship. I want reconciliation between you and that person that you used to be friends with more than I want your offering. It's more valuable to me. And if we let that down into our heart, we get a revelation of how gracious God has been to us. It'd help us navigate these things a lot more. There's a day coming we're going to have to speak the truth, especially in terms of things our government is doing. We're going to have to fight for the faith. Jude, he wrote a lot about that concerning the end time church. We're going to have to learn how to do this. We're going to have to get better at it than we are. We can't just suffer in silence. We can't just stuff it down. We can't smolder. We're going to have to speak up. We're going to have to say the truth. We're going to have to say what's right. There's a place for that. Then there's a time where you just say, I'm just let that go. And that's to your glory. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord, none of us are good at forgiving, but no one was better at forgiving than you. None of us are very good at forbearing, but there is no one more forbearing than you. Thank you for being so long-suffering with me. You could have taken my head off with that sword so many times, and you decide just to let it go. Thank you for the way you love us. 
Thank you for speaking truth into our life when we need it. We need it in sermons. We need it in friendships. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. God, help us to be more mature in how we navigate these things. Grow us up, we pray. Grow me up, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.